welcome to I Think You're Interesting. I'm Todd Vanderwerp, the I, and I think you're interesting. If you're like a lot of Americans, people who voted for either Donald Trump or Hillary Clinton last fall, you spent a lot of 2016 thinking about, hey, what is going on with all of these people who seem to have lived diametrically opposite lives to my own? My guest today, Amy Goldstein, wrote a book exactly about that. I I don't know if she knew how timely it would become. Uh, I'm kind of amazed by it. It's called Janesville. It's set in the city of of Janesville, Wisconsin, and is about what happened in the wake of the 2008 financial crisis as the city essentially split into two different cities, one with people who overcame and came out of the uh, economic recession with quite a bit, doing quite well, and one with people who lost almost everything or slid further down the economic ladder than they had been before. It is one of those books that talks about America right now without drawing too much attention to it. It's a wonderful feat of reporting and writing. And as someone who started his career in Milwaukee, Wisconsin, I really wanted to talk with Amy about her book, and I'm so happy to have her on the show. Amy, thank you for joining me. Pleasure to be with you. I started my career at the Milwaukee Journal Sentinel, uh, and I was there when an event happened. In early in this book, you talk about how in 2005 GM did not close the auto manufacturing plant in Janesville, and it was this cause for celebration. And I was working at the Milwaukee paper at that time. I remember that event vividly. Uh, you pick up when the plant is closed in 2008. Uh, I'm wondering how you found this story and how you sort of decided to turn it into a, a, a reporting project as big as a book. Well, I was really interested um, during the Great Recession and afterwards in what um, this bad economic time actually was doing to people. Um, I had the sense that there was a lot of good journalism being done about the political fighting over economic policy. There was a lot of good journalism being done, uh, for instance, during the 2010 midterm election about voter antipathy, voter anger, voter disaffection. And I sort of realized that I didn't see much writing that was fusing those two things. And I thought you couldn't really understand why people in this country were anxious unless you thought about their personal experiences economically, Uh, jobs that they were losing, jobs that people they knew were losing, fears that their jobs might be the next to go. And I just came to think that this was a very profound change that was happening in this country with all this economic anxiety, and I wanted to find a way to write about it close up. Interesting, interesting. What made Janesville the, the city you chose? What, what, why was that the place you zeroed in on? Well, I had heard about Janesville a few years before when I was looking for a place to do a story for my day job at the Washington Post because I was writing a few stories about uh, recession effects. And somebody had mentioned to me that there was a small city in Wisconsin that I had never heard of before that had just lost a big auto plant. And at Mm. the time, I didn't go out there because the pain was too fresh. Uh, The plant had just closed, and some of the people who were still getting union unemployment benefits were getting that help. So it took a while for the pain to really seep in. So I never went out there uh, the first time I heard about it. But when I began to get really serious about finding a community to do this kind of a close-up look in, Janesville had stuck in my head, and it appealed to me uh, for a few reasons. One, I really wanted to find a community that had never before been part of the Rust Belt, because I wanted Mm. to be able to look at what this bad economic time had created, um, not at an accumulation of economic problems. Um, And Janesville fit the bill. 
I also, of course, needed a place to look at that had lost a lot of jobs, and Janesville certainly fit the bill that way, too. Uh, there are different figures you can find, but if you look at the federal figures, uh, there were about 9,000 jobs from the county that Janesville's in that vanished in 2008 and 2009. It was a lot of jobs. Um, by the spring of tw- 2009, several months after the plant closed down, the uh, it was a General Motors plant. We should say that right off the bat. It was called the Janesville right. Assembly Plant. When this General Motors closed a few months later, the unemployment rate in the county that Janesville's in was above 13%. Wow. So that was a big deal. Um, so I definitely felt as if I could find something dramatic uh, if I set out to look there. I also yeah. was interested in the politics of this community. Before I knew anything about Janesville much, I knew that this was an old Democratic voting United Auto Workers town that was in the state that uh, recently had elected Scott Walker, you know, obviously a notable conservative, and um, had as its congressman Paul Ryan. So I just thought there might be some kind of interesting dynamic to find. So so those are some of the reasons why I started going out to Janesville to do kind of these exploratory visits to see whether this might well work. Right, right. You actually start the book with Paul Ryan uh, when he finds out the plant is is closing. uh, And then you start delving into people from all walks of life in Janesville, people who worked at the plant, people who are like business leaders in the community, teenagers, uh, teachers, things like that. Tell me about the people you found to tell this story through, like, like how did you go out and start uh, finding the right people to be your sources for this? Well, my basic idea was to try to create kind of a kaleidoscope. So you would see mm-hmm. from different vantage points what this dramatic loss of jobs looked like from different people's perspectives. So that was the big idea. But then, as you say, the question is, how do you find people? Yeah. So I did it a little at a time, and I was not quick or efficient about deciding who was ultimately going to be the main people in the story. Um, The first time I went to town, I set up a few appointments with people just who I thought might be able to start to give me a feel. So I met first with a longtime journalist in town who had grown up in Janesville. I met with somebody who ended up being one of the characters, one of the people of the story, a guy named Bob Borman, Mm -hmm. who was the director of the job center, which was kind of ground zero. When people lost jobs, this job center was a place, the kind of offices that exist all over the country in various communities, um, where people came to try to get advice on what to do about having just lost a job. So I started to get to know Bob and talked about how Things looked from his perspective. That first trip out there, I met with two retirees who were leading the UAW local, figuring that they had some sense. And everybody I met, I said, well, who else should I get to know? Um, So it was this very incremental process of meeting people. And in terms of um, the worker families, I mean, the story has three main auto worker families who run through um, what's essentially a five-year chronology that I tell in the story. I wanted to be able to show what kinds of choices, different choices, people made when there were really no good choices left. Yeah. So, in order to do that, I needed to understand, well, what were people doing in town? What was the range of things that people decided to do when their work went away? Work that they had thought would last their lifetimes. Um, and once I understood the different kinds of things people did, then I could start to think about, well, who are really good examples that readers eventually might be able to identify with um, to illustrate those different kinds of choices. Interesting. You mentioned uh, 
people who thought these jobs would be there forever and then they were taken away. And as I was reading this book, I had the very strong sense that in addition to being about economics and politics and all these things, it's also a book sort of about grief, about coming to terms with losing something that you thought you were going to have. Um, And what did you see as sort of the common reactions to that feeling of, oh, this thing we always thought would be there isn't going to be there? And and I have a follow-up to that, but we'll, we'll get to that. Well, let me back up a little bit from your question and say that one reason why I thought, another reason why I thought Jane's would be a really interesting place to tell this story was just how long this General Motors plant had been in town. Yeah. It began uh, turning out uh, tractors in 1919 and began making Chevys in 1923. So there were generations of people uh, who handed down these jobs, brought in their sons and daughters and nieces and nephews uh, for easily three generations. And there were a lot of workers whose parents and grandparents and aunts and uncles had been part of this General Motors culture. Um, People worked uh, at the plant for 30 years, and at that point they were eligible to retire on good retirement benefits. There were also supplier companies that grew up in town over the decades. So there were thousands of additional people who had thought that those jobs were stable as long as the General Motors plant was there. And suddenly it was gone. And, you know, you mentioned that there had been kind of a a rumor or a false alarm a few years before the announcement that it finally was going to close. And that was typical. I mean, over a number of years, there had been these rumors in town that the plant might be about to shut down. And that became, as I understood it, kind of a backdrop to life in town. There were just these, you know, worries that it might happen someday. But those worries had gone along for so long that nobody really believed it. Yeah. So when the announcement finally came from General Motors that the plant was going to be closed, I think as much as grief, and there certainly was grief, you're using the right word, there was also an enormous amount of denial. Yeah. People believed that this closing, if it ever happened, was going to be temporary and General Motors would give Janesville another product to manufacture and everything would get going again. Right. And that denial lasted for years. I mean, the plant closed at the end of 2008. I arrived in town for the first time the summer of 2011, so it was a couple of years later. And I was still hearing people say, it's just a matter of time till it comes back. And I'd hear that a few years after that. Um, So that was a really prevalent reaction, that people just thought over time this would straighten out. And I think that was important because it took people quite a while in some instances, not all instances, but some instances, to really figure out, okay, I've got to do something different. I can't just sit around doing something temporary till life goes back to normal. Yeah, yeah. As I started reading this book, I guess I sort of thought I was going to see a difference between the people who kept their heads above water and the people who were sort of swept away in this flood. But there really isn't a consistent pattern to you know, who was able to survive and who was not. Did you did you find that there were people who were more likely to come through this, uh, uh, not ahead, but, you know, more or less with their lives intact, or was it uh, essentially random? Well, that was a question that really interested me. What determined who came through this okay and had the resources, the you know, emotional resources, the family resources, the intellectual resources, people went back to school to try to retrain for a different kind of work, that they would come out okay, and who didn't come out okay. Mm -hmm. And there were 
some of each. Yeah. Um, I mean, there are differences even among the small group of people who are in the story that the book tells. Um, some people did okay. It was also interesting to me what different people thought doing okay looked like. Sure. Because one of the families in the book, um, after a few years, were making much less money than they had made in their manufacturing jobs and their auto jobs. But they felt as if they had both a couple, husband and wife, had retrained, um, eventually got work in the fields that they were interested in. In the case of the wife, it took her a few tries to figure out what path was a good path for her. And they felt that they were really lucky that they had redefined themselves, that they had managed to find other work in town. And they thought that they had really fared well, even though they were making uh, much less income than they had ever imagined that they might be earning. Yeah, yeah. There's kind of a ripple effect in the book, too, because you, you start with the plant closing and then other things close and then other businesses close. And by the end, like people are relying on charity, but there's increasingly less money for charity. Um, how long, like, is that ripple effect still going on? Like, how long did it take before things sort of um, stabilized in a way where people could start to put things back together? Well, let me talk a little bit about that ripple effect. Um, so if you think about a plant that had at its heyday in the 1970s had 7,000 workers, more right. or less. Mm-hmm. At the end, it had about 3,000. And then, as I mentioned a minute ago, there were all these auto suppliers who were making seats for the plant, who were driving the finished vehicles out of the plant. I mean, there were all these different supplier companies. That was another few thousand people. Mm-hmm. And then if Janesville has a little more than 60,000 residents, so it's a city, but a fairly small city. And if you think about what losing several thousand jobs does to um, a county seat, which is where the main commerce in this county is, um, fewer people were going out to eat. Mm-hmm. So some restaurants closed, little shops closed because fewer people were had discretionary income to shop. Um, I know a woman whose daycare center uh, went under because uh, she realized that the parents of her kids that she was watching no longer needed someplace to to have their kids taken care of during the day because they went at home if they were out of work. So this didn't all happen quickly, but I think that there were these waves of um, job failures Um, starting with the auto workers themselves and then rippling over time into other parts of town. Now, in terms of how long it all lasted and where things are now, if you look just at the unemployment rate as one measure, uh, it's way down from the height of about 13%. It's between 4 and 5% now. So that that looks pretty good. But if you look more deeply at what kinds of jobs people are working and what their wages are, they're nothing like the $28 an hour that GM paid. Right. So people have had to shift their standard of living. Some people are working multiple jobs. Um, one of the families in my story made a decision that a number of people in town did. If you had worked at General Motors itself, you had often transfer rights to another GM plant elsewhere in the country that was still operating. So one guy whose story I follow um, very reluctantly took a job after a few years as in Fort Wayne, Indiana, hundreds of miles away. And he leaves every Monday morning and comes back every Friday night. And that's how he's kept his family in the middle class. Right, right. Yeah, it's one of those things where um, the roots in that community are so deep. These people have been there for generations and they're tied to the community. But so many of the jobs have shifted elsewhere, as you mentioned. What did you find about Janesville that you 
uh, I guess, found to be the pla- a place that people loved and a place that people liked to keep living in? Well, I think it's a sense of where home is. Mm-hmm. Um, that sounds a little corny and sentimental, but there were just a lot of people who had extended families in town, um, and this is where their sense of belonging was. Um, I mean, from my vantage point, one of the things that struck me was that Janesville is actually a very resilient place. Right. Um, it was kind of the opposite of a place that when this huge <laughs> tidal wave of job losses rolled through town, it didn't just, you know, take it and lie down. Right. I mean, there were big efforts to try to bring jobs back. Um, they're still going on. Um, as you mentioned, there's a big tradition of philanthropy, of generosity in town. So there were lots of nonprofits that were trying to expand their services in pretty creative ways, doing a lot of fundraising, though, as you mentioned, there was a bit of a problem there, which was that more and more people needed help than ever before, and the number of people who could be donors was was shrinking. Right. Um, so there's a lot of stresses. But none of that is for lack of trying. Right, right. One of the things that your book really drove home to me was when these manufacturing jobs go, they're not easy to replace. Like sort of in my head, I thought, oh, they can, somebody can just go back to school or they can uh, find a different <laughs> job somewhere else. Uh, and this really disabused me of those notions. Can you talk a little bit about why it's so hard to replace those jobs when they leave? Well, I was really interested in the question of job retraining um, mm-hmm. because it seemed to me that if I was going to take a good hard look at what happened when jobs went away, um, the next question is, well, what do people do? Right. And part of that question is, what does our federal policy say people should do under these circumstances? And within the Department of Labor, um, Federal Department of Labor, there's a lot of money for programs to retrain people. Mm-hmm. And that's kind of a mantra. I mean, it occurred to me pretty early on that if you think about the kind of economic ideas that Republicans versus Democrats uh, tend to espouse, the idea of job retraining is one of the only things that both parties agree on. I mean, they have little differences about how they would go about it. But it's really a pretty basic credo that people should just reinvent themselves. Right. So another reason that I chose Janesville as a site to uh, take a look at what happens when work goes away is that it had a technical college uh, whose mission was to do this kind of vocational training. Uh, so one of the early parts of the work that I did for this book was to get to know people at the college, get to know people who were retraining, and sort of my inner nerd came out, and I did with a couple of uh, labor economists a statistical analysis of what happened uh, to people in that part of southern Wisconsin who did and did not go back to school, what happened to them afterwards in terms of uh, wages and in terms of their odds of having a steady job in the first place. And the results were not very encouraging. I mean, it turned out that um, if you looked a few years after this job loss happened, people who retrained were less likely to have steady work and were more likely to have bigger pay drops from before Mm. than people who hadn't gone back to school. Mm. And let me just say that none of that is because the college wasn't trying really hard. Right. Um, I mean, this is another instance of what a resilient and I think in some ways very creative community uh, Janesville is. Um, I mean, I didn't know that when I picked it, but this college really tried hard. Um, I mean, it was hit by this wave of people coming back to school, many of whom were 
in their 30s, 40s, hadn't been in school half a lifetime, might not have liked school very much when they were kids. Mm-hmm. Um, they're out of work. They don't know how they're going to put dinner on the table, you know, a little bit into the future. Their identity has been kind of suddenly stripped away, and they're supposed to start studying. I mean, that's a pretty hard set of circumstances. Yeah. So this college tried to figure out what to do, and they did all kinds of things. I mean, for instance, they quickly learned at the college that some of these factory workers turning themselves into students weren't very good at typing on computers. Mm. So the college started this computer boot camp. They started study skills uh, sessions. They did all kinds of things to try to prop up these people. But it's not an easy thing to do. Right, right. I want to talk a little bit about this book, in addition to being really interesting and really insightful about uh, the, the economic turmoil of the last several years, is really well written. And I want to talk to you about like how you chose, because any reporting on any story you do is going to have a lot more than gets into the, into the story, even in a book. And I want to talk with you about how you chose, um, how to structure it, like how you chose how the story was going to proceed, how you chose those five years to focus on. Like, what was your process in finding the through line of the book, so to speak? Well, I decided that this should be a chronology, first mm-hmm. of all, because I wanted um, to show how things unspooled over time. And I had a sense pretty early on that the story should start with the announcement that the plant was going to close. And mm-hmm. that announcement came in June of 2008, which uh, turned out to be uh, just a half a year before the plant closed, although when General Motors announced the closing. They said it would be another two years before it closed. Um, So that was kind of a reporting and a writing challenge because I didn't show up on the scene until 2011. So one of the things that I needed to work on was to make sure that the experience of reading the book, you couldn't tell when I was there and when I was not there. Right. Mm -hmm. So I did a lot of what's called reconstructing, you know, Mm -hmm asking people to go back and describe things that predated my arrival on the scene. And I wanted it to feel human. I wanted it to feel detailed. I wanted it to feel emotional. And I didn't want it to feel corny. Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. So, uh, I mean, people can judge whether I pulled any of that off, but mm-hmm. that was kind of what was in my mind about how I wanted the experience of reading the book to be. Sure. Um, so I asked people a lot about, you know, not, you know, kind of silly amateurs reporting questions like, well, how did you feel? But I asked people to remember things. And there were times when I probably, you know, tested people's patience, asking them over and over and over again. I mean, I'll give you an example. Uh, there's one chapter. Well, let me just say before I give you the example that this book is told through very short chapters, yes. um, 55 chapters, and each one is kind of rooted around a scene in one person or a couple people's experiences. So I wanted uh, to create the impression reading the book that you were seeing these rotating perspectives as the chronology went along. So that meant that I needed to have enough material from each person that I could come back to people from time to time. Right. So as you say, I got a lot of, you know, reporting done, and then I had to think about, well, what were the most powerful things I knew about what had happened to each person and try to fit that together as a jigsaw puzzle mm-hmm. uh, in this chronological way. So the example I was going to give you is that there's one chapter um, partway through the book in which um, a character, a guy named Matt uh, Wopat, uh, decides that he's going to start commuting to Indiana. Right. And he is sitting in his truck in his garage 
having just said goodbye to his family, knowing he's got to back down his driveway and start driving to Indiana, which he really does not want to do. Yeah. And he told me about that the first time, and I thought that was a very kind of emotionally compelling moment in his life. And I must have interviewed him, I don't know, 10, 20 times, like, tell me one more detail and remember this and remember that. So it was this process of accretion, of getting these little details that I could use to try to make the story vivid. Um, so people could really identify with what it felt like to be sitting in your truck, having to drive backwards down your driveway and start a commute that you don't want to make. Yeah. Yeah. That's a, that's a powerful chapter. You, you, you captured that image. Well, um, what's something that a story or a person or a detail that you just couldn't fit in that you, you wish you'd been able to. Let me, um, answer a slightly different question, which I think okay. will get at what you're, what you're driving sure. at. Um, so, one of the things that I thought about was how political to make this book. Right. And my goal, not just because I'm a journalist to not somebody who's a blogger or an editorial writer, I'm not an opiner for a living, I'm a mm-hmm. journalist who, you know, prefers to keep neutrality um, and credibility with people on all sides of the issues I'm writing about. Not just because of that, but also because I really wanted to show this story from lots of people's perspectives. I didn't want to take sides. Mm-hmm. Um, at the same time, I felt as if I couldn't ignore that this was a period of five years during which the politics of what was going on in Wisconsin um, were becoming harsher. Yeah. Um, so I talk about the protest against Scott Walker. Um, that was the biggest protest in state history outside the Capitol in Madison for days, uh, uh, late winter of 2011. Um, and I tell it through the eyes of two people from Janesville who were in various ways part of that. Right. Um, so I'm trying to tell about political things without opining. Yeah. And that was a, a boundary that I tried very hard to keep. And I tried to do it by knowing enough about what these events meant to the different people in the story that I could show it through their eyes. What's the secret of a well-groomed guy? Why, it's the art of shaving. Founded in New York in 1996, the art of shaving has been helping guys look their best for over 20 years. I should know, I love shaving, I love a good shave, and the art of shaving has some great products to help you look your best as I look my best this fine day. As you can see on this wonderful podcast, you're looking at me right now, I know you are. The art of shaving has your total routine covered, whether shaving, beard maintenance, hair, skin, body, or fragrance. The art of shaving's award-winning products are formulated with the highest quality botanical ingredients featuring pure essential oils. The four elements of the perfect shave have been created to deliver smooth results every day. Start by prepping skin with a signature pre-shave oil. Create a thick, foamy lather with shaving cream applied with a shave brush. You shave, and then you replenish moisture with the aftershave balm. Finish off that perfect shave with one of these five fragrances, sandalwood and cypress, oud suede, vetiver citron, green lavender, and coriander and cardamom. 
Each of these colognes has been carefully assembled for a distinctive scent. The Art of Shaving offers a convenient replenishment service that allows you to save on your favorite products while never having to worry. Now, our listeners will receive 15% off their first order and free shipping by using the promo code TODD, T-O-D-D, two Ds. To get this offer, go online to theartofshaving.com. Use my special promo code TODD to get 15% off your first order and, what's more, free shipping. Visit theartofshaving.com for this special offer or for a consultation with a grooming expert step into one of their many retail locations near you. The specter that kind of hangs over the book is the 2016 election, which you brush up against very briefly in the epilogue, but that's that's it. Like you you talk about it a little bit there. But last year as we were building up to the election, there was a lot of talk about, you know, working class America, uh, these towns that have lost so many jobs. Um what do you think us in the media missed about uh, this world, people like the people in Janesville that that we had kind of had to backfill as we entered 2016 and realized the election was going to revolve around that stuff. Well, you can imagine that the morning after the election, I woke up and ran to my computer to see how Janesville's county voted. Yeah. <laughs> um, I mean, I couldn't wait to find out what had happened because um, Wisconsin voted Republican, voted for Donald Trump. It was the right. first time the state had gone Republican, I think, since 1984. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It was a big change. Uh, Janesville did not vote that way. Right. Um, the county stayed Democratic. It was less Democratic in its voting than it had been in 2012 for the election of Barack Obama. A um, lot less Democratic, but that was because fewer Democrats turned out to vote not because the Republican vote increased in the county. Mm. So I've given a fair amount of thought to what this all means. And I guess the formulation that I've come to is that the kinds of economic experiences that people went through in Janesville were the kinds of things that perhaps in other communities that are less democratic places um, prompted people to be looking for a candidate who was talking about change. Right. Mm -hmm. It wasn't really enough to unmoor Janesville's own, at this point, pretty long political identity. But you could see those kinds of experiences in places with less uh, entrenched political identities that were democratic, really thinking about, okay, who's going to help us get get out of this? Sure, sure. The politicians, uh, journalists, you know, have talked a lot about the recession and the effects of the 2007-2008 recession. But we tend to talk about it in terms of statistics. Uh, And this book talks about it in terms of of the human cost and the emotional cost. What do you think is the thing that we miss most when we talk about it in terms of unemployment rate or here's how many jobs were lost or things like that? Well, I think what we miss is that even when people are doing their best and are in a pretty resilient community— with a lot of support, this is really hard. Yeah, It's really hard. And I guess the other thing that I think is that losing work is very personal. Mm. Um, One of the things that I did, and this is going to be statistical in a minute, but it's going to come back to people's lives. One of the things that I did as part of the work on this book was uh, collaborate with some researchers at the University of Wisconsin on a survey just of Rock County, Janesville County, uh, Wisconsin, to look at people's economic attitudes and experiences. And we did this work in 2013. So it was five years after 
these auto jobs went away. And we tried to find out a lot of things about, you know, people's sense of unions and to what extent they thought that the government should be helping out or not when this kind of thing happened to a community. Um, We tried to gauge just how common job loss was. It turned out that about one-third, one in three people who answered the survey said they or someone in their home had lost a job. So that says something about how widespread this experience was. But for people who had lost jobs who answered this survey, we asked a series of questions about what it felt like, what the emotional impact was. Uh, You know, some basic things like, do you have trouble paying for food? Half said that they did. Uh, I mean, during the time that they were out of work. Um, We asked, you know, are you avoiding friends? Um, Question that really grabbed me emotionally was one that asked, uh, do you feel ashamed or embarrassed that you lost a job? Yeah. And just over half the people um, who answered the survey said they did. And that really moved me because if you think about it, these were people who were losing work at the same time as thousands of other people right around them in an economy that was a really bad economy, the worst economic time we've had in this country since the Great Depression of the 1930s. And if they were embarrassed, they were feeling it was somehow their fault that they had lost work or they hadn't figured out how to make everything right again, how to put it all back together again. And to me, that says that losing work is so personal. Yeah, yeah. The One of the things that strikes me as someone who grew up in the Midwest, as a very Midwestern trait of some of the people in the book is, um, they are very reticent to ask for help. Even when they need help very much, they're embarrassed or ashamed to do that. What did you find about sort of that psychological overcoming that psychological hurdle of saying, I need your help? Well, it may be a Midwestern characteristic, but I also think um, it's the difference between having been middle class and falling out of the middle class or partway out of the middle class versus having been poor all along. And that's not to say that poor people love to ask for help. But when you've been middle class and you never expected that you would be anything else I think that one of the things that I've learned from the people I got to know in Janesville is that there is a real tendency to try to hide how much you're hurting. Mm. Um, You mentioned uh, teenagers. There's one family in the story uh, with twin daughters who were in high school when I met them. And I remember them telling me that um, they got their clothes at Goodwill, but they would look really hard through the jeans to try to find designer jeans. Mm. So that even though they were buying cheap-used jeans— their classmates didn't know that that's what they were doing. Mm-hmm. And that just seemed to me kind of, you know, emblematic yeah. of people trying to keep their lives going and try to look on the surface as if things were going okay. And if that's how you're feeling, asking for help is a really hard thing. Um, there's one um, little nonprofit in town where I remember it's called an anti-poverty group that's been around since the 1960s. And I remember the folks who work there telling me that they were used to people calling. I mean, the, you know, poor people in Janesville, like in any other community, and people who've always been poor would call and say, how do I get food stamps or how do I get Medicaid? It's called uh, Badger Care right. in Wisconsin. Um, and that was easy kind of help to give. I mean, the people at this little nonprofit knew how to give that kind of advice. The new people who were calling, people who were falling out of the middle class called and were asking how do I get a job? Mm. We don't want your government help. We want help in getting a job. Mm. 
that was harder kind of advice to give. Yeah. Yeah. You mentioned Badger Care. Um, in, in your job at, at the Washington Post, you do a lot of reporting, writing on healthcare, healthcare policy. How did this experience of going to Janesville inform your writing on that topic? Uh, and, and as we look at this big fight we're having right now over uh, the repeal of uh, the Affordable Care Act, things like that, um, how, how are you thinking about that world back there as, as you report on these issues now? Well, it's kind of a chicken and the egg question that you're asking because <laughs> I've always liked, you know, in the work I do for the Washington Post to be writing stories that are kind of at the border of policy and politics and looking at how both of those big influences affect people on the ground. So I think the fact that I was drawn to spend what turned out to be nearly six years working on this book mm-hmm. um, is as much uh, you know, testament to what my instincts are like journalistically as the other way around. Yeah. Um, you know, I hung out uh, a lot at the one free medical clinic in Janesville. Mm-hmm. This was before, so the chronology, I mean, as you say, there's an epilogue, but the chronology stops uh, partway through uh, 2013. Mm-hmm. Um, so that was really before the uh, Affordable Care Act got going with expanding Medicaid and with um, the uh, insurance marketplaces with federal subsidies. So I didn't really look in Janesville for the story of the book at how this law was affecting things. Right. But certainly, as I'm writing now about the um, big political fight going on in Washington, and now as you know, members of Congress go home to their communities, they're you know hearing the fight back home. Um, you know, I think about people I know in Janesville who have struggled to get health insurance. One of the families. Um, that I write about, the one with the teenage girls. They're, the girl's father, who had worked at General Motors, uh, decided after a couple years not to transfer um, the way some people were doing, but to take a buyout mm-hmm. from General Motors, which meant that unless Janesville plant itself reopened, he was never going to be able to get another GM job. So he'd never get the kind of pension that his father and father-in-law and uncles were, um, you know, were, were getting. Um, the reason he took that buyout, which didn't offer him more than a couple thousand dollars in cash, was because it offered six more months of health insurance for his family. Mm, yeah, yeah. Wow. Um, this book also has a lot of material on sort of the uh, United Auto Workers Union uh, and how it is still a presence in the town, but a diminished one. Uh, how how has the union, But and yet you sort of talk, again, we, as we've mentioned, you talk about the um, the fact that the town is still solidly democratic, as you'd expect a union town to be. How has the sort of the the ghost of the union hanging over everything, how has that affected people in town? Um, and and how, what is the union presence now? Well, the union presence is there, but really attrited. Mm-hmm. Um, there were, I think in 2008, about 4,000 active members of the union. Um, now it's down to the hundreds. Um, mm. I mean, I've seen different figures 300, 500, 600, but it's kind of on that order of magnitude. And the biggest membership of this union local, it's UAW Local 95 is the union in Janesville. Um, The biggest membership are the retirees. Mm. There are thousands of retirees, and they're pretty um, loyal to the union. I mean, they go to membership meetings. uh, They're paying a little bit of extra dues to try to help prop up the finances of the union local so they can keep keep the lights on. Um, and I've talked to some of the uh, 
union leaders now who are all, I mean, it used to be that if you worked at the assembly plant um, and you were a union officer, you could get release time from your job to do union work. Mm. Well, when the plant closed, there was no job from which to get release time. Yeah. So the retirees became the officers, and that's been true now uh, for a number of years. And I've talked to some of them. I get, I've gotten to know some of them, and you know they're still very loyal to what the union's about. Um, yeah. But there's a real difference between the older generation. And if you think about people who might have gotten an auto job out of high school and worked for 30 years, I mean, you can retire in your 50s. Mm-hmm. So it's not that these are all old, old people. But, you know, there's a real generational divide between people who came along at a time when the union was representing them and younger people in town who are not working factory jobs who aren't in a union. Yeah. It's a real bifurcation. Yeah, yeah. What was something in reporting this book that surprised you that you you genuinely did not expect? Well, it's something I've mentioned already, which is I just think the level of ingenuity of mm. the small city um, was pretty impressive. Yeah. Um, I mean, the college, I was talking about this technical college that was really going all out to try to figure out how to help these auto workers who needed something new to do for a living. Um, they actually persuaded um, a senator at the time, Senator Cole, mm-hmm. uh, to get an earmark uh, to bring a million dollars for each of two years to the college just to train dislocated workers put it, mm. for a small group of people got a huge amount of extra support at the college because of this money that Congress had given just for this college. Mm. The guy who ran the job center um, started a coalition in town of different kinds of nonprofits um, and things like the public library, um, the union was part of it, to try to figure out who should be doing what not to duplicate scarce resources. Right. right. Um, You know, there was just a lot of good government kind of behavior. Yeah. Um, I mean, not political government, but just civic behavior uh, to try to cope as best as people can under this circumstance. And I guess one of the things that really impressed upon me was that even with all this smart strategic effort, it's still really hard to get your life back together and to get jobs back that paid anything like the jobs that went away. I know hindsight's twenty twenty, and I, I know you don't like to opine, but when you look back at that plant closing, if we assume that the plant closing was inevitable, do you see something Janesville could have done better to handle it? Or or did they sort of get through as best as they possibly could? So I don't know that Janesville could have prevented the plant from closing. I mean, right. one thing I should mention is that uh, when General Motors announced, and this was about a year before General Motors itself filed for bankruptcy, um, so it was trying to shed jobs, um, there were a number of plants that closed at around the same time. So when the announcement um, was made that the assembly plant was going to shut down, there was a huge effort um, by the governor at the time, who was a Democratic governor, predated the current governor, um, the county, uh, the union, the city, all got together to try to put together a package, um, financial package, um, and to make a case to General Motors why Janesville should be given a new little subcompact car that General Motors was going to start making somewhere in the United States. And this was the biggest package of financial incentives that Wisconsin, and Wisconsin meaning the state and the city and the county, had ever put together to try to recruit any industry. 
And they really thought they were going to do it. Mm -hmm. And they thought they had a good case to present to General Motors, that this plant had very good quality workers. Um, It had a pretty congenial relationship, uh, union and management. Um, It had a pretty comparatively low per-vehicle production cost. Um, The quality of the vehicles was very good compared to other plants. And they thought that they were going to persuade the company to start up again in Janesville. And they were wrong. Mm. Um, But again, it's not for lack of trying. Yeah, yeah. In the last year's election, uh, President Trump would frequently talk about bringing back or keeping manufacturing jobs in the U.S. And there would be sort of the response to that from some uh, in the media or on on the left side of the aisle that a lot of those jobs are just gone, that they're not going to come back. Do you, do you think that's – do you think there's a way to bring back that manufacturing sector in some of these cities or is it is it is it just gone for now? So staying focused on the microcosm of Janesville – um, there have been some jobs that have come to town. Manufacturing jobs have not been what's been coming back. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, interesting. I want to ask you a little bit about like your own process and your own writing. And I'm wondering, when did you uh, first get really interested in reporting and journalism? What, what, was, what sort of got you fascinated by this world? Well, I've been reporting, um, I guess, since I was a kid. Um, <laughs> I edited my high school high school newspaper. Yeah. Um, I was very active in my college newspaper. And at a point that everybody else I knew was marching off to graduate school, I thought, you know, I'm tired of juggling academia and being a newspaper editor. And maybe I should just try to either get this journalism thing into myself or out of myself professionally. Hmm, hmm. Um, So and get a job, I'll try to do that. So I started out working in Norfolk, Virginia, uh, when I was 22 years old. Yeah. And uh, worked there for about four and a half years and uh, decided it'd be interesting to see what life was like at a little bit larger newspaper and worked at the Baltimore Sun for four years and have been at the Washington Post ever since. Wow. Um, what excites you about a story? What is it when you see something, you say, okay, that's a great story and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to try and report that out? So I'm in some ways kind of an unusual reporter in that I like both adrenaline journalism, mm-hmm. you know, a good breaking news story where... I can get a scoop and re- reveal something that I think is report important that people don't know. I also like doing long, in-depth projects, right. um, often things that have a quality that this project did, which was merging some statistical things uh, with some narrative, up-close, personal information of some kind, yeah. uh, usually things that uh, have some kind of an edge to them, some kind of policy question to them. Um, so I like doing both those things. Mm-hmm. What's the thing that 22-year-old you at the, at the Norfolk newspaper didn't know about reporting that you wish you could uh, go back and tell her about? Um, I think that it took me a while to understand that it's not just about reporting with your intellect. It's not about just asking questions and hearing accurately what somebody tells you. Right. It's also reporting with your emotional intelligence. Yeah, yeah. Um, mm. I think that paying attention to how somebody is talking to you, figuring out why they're telling you what they're telling you, what makes them uncomfortable, what makes them comfortable, and what those things mean. Um, thinking about, well, now that I know that, what do I know both about 
the world a little differently and about this person's perspective. Yeah. I think f- fusing that, you know, intellect and emotional kinds of intelligence are something that is really fundamental to journalism and I didn't know when I started out. Yeah, that that's that's interesting to me because a, a lot of the time, like when I was in J school, I was not, uh, the emotional aspect of it didn't really come up, but so much of the best reporting has that human character to it. How do you find the people to center these stories about like big policy questions or big political questions, but they, you know, they come down to people. How, how have you learned to find the right people to talk to for these stories? Well, sometimes it's a matter of persuading somebody you really want to talk to you that they should talk to you. Yeah. Um, and that's just a process of winning trust. And you, mm. there's no shortcut way to do that. Mm. Um, you just have to try to uh, persuade somebody that you're listening hard to them and that um, you'll be fair, uh, that you're hearing them accurately, that you don't have an agenda. Yeah. So that's one kind of finding people is persuading reluctant people that it's okay to talk to you. Um, and then the other thing, which I think is what you're driving at, is how do you find good examples of things that you're trying to write about. Right, right. Mm -hmm. And I think it's just a matter of talking to enough people and really paying attention to the quality of the details that a given person can tell you. Mm, Yeah. We're in an era when I think think I've seen reported up to like one-third of of the American public really doesn't trust the media, thinks the media is literally making things up. How do you go out into an environment and talk to people— uh, when there are that many people who just genuinely don't believe that, you know, who they hear the Washington Post and think I'm going to go the other way. All I can do is do my work the best I can. Hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and, and finally, as we, as we're in this section, um, what did you learn about reporting from doing this book? Like what from doing this book have you taken into the rest of your work? Well, I think the extent to which I, focused in this reporting on what the psyche and emotions of people were. Um, It's not that I haven't done that before, but I think the proportions were greater this Mm. time. Um, So I think that's something I've been thinking about as I do stories out around the country um, when I have time to leave Washington every now and then. about what it's like to be in different parts of the healthcare system. So that's what I'm writing about now. And I think just paying attention to what makes something feel vivid when you're reading it. Yeah. Um, you know, it's something that, again, I've always been mindful of, but when you spend this many years and work this deeply on um, something that you really care about telling well, um, it just gives you um, a little extra push yeah. to really work hard to find those little details that are will help somebody who's reading a sentence say, "Oh, I get that." Hmm, hmm. Uh, this this may be something you don't have an answer for because often writers don't. But how do you know one of those details? Like, how do you know? Th- oh, this is the right color to convey this this moment, or this is the right uh, gesture, or something like that. Um, oh, I know it when I hear it. Um, <laughs> maybe it's like a set obscenity, you know, uh, the Supreme Court justice said, I'll recognize it when I see it. Um, <laughs> but no, it's like, I will hear a little detail and I'll get this little, you know, buzz in my head that says, I mean, it's almost a visceral thing that says, oh, that's good. <laughs> <laughs> well, we end the show every week by asking our guests some of the same questions. So I'm going to ask you those. Uh, the first one is, 
What is the last like movie or book or TV show, just something pop cultural that you have listened to or watched? And what did you think of it? Well, I've got to say that um, my book came out just a couple months ago, <laughs> and um, I am just beginning to find little bits of time where I can think about reading a book for pleasure <laughs> <laughs> or go to a movie for pleasure. Mm. Um, it's something that um, while I was juggling my pretty hyperactive job at the Post, which I love, yeah. with work on the book um, that I love, uh, wasn't quite part of my life. So I have this little sense of not a specific thing that you know really moved me, mm-hmm. but of um, possibility of being more open to what's around me now. What's, what's on your nightstand? What are you hoping to read next? Oh, I um, have two sets of books. Um, some are books that are kind of functional equivalents of what I wrote, um, mm-hmm. people who've taken a look at economic things in interesting ways. And uh, I, uh, you know, have gotten through parts of those books, but kind of sped through them to see what they were and look forward to reading them a little more deeply. And I always love to read novels. Mm-hmm. Who, uh, who is the writer you have learned the most from that you've never met? I remember being 16 and falling in love with Thoreau. Mm. <laughs> um, there have been lots of things at different times that have been influences. Yeah, yeah. What do you look for in writing? What, what really grabs you about someone else's writing? Um, I look for cadence. Mm. I like, um, look for whether a sentence just feels like it has the right shape. Yeah, yeah. Um, I look for, yeah, I look for plot, you know, whether mm. it's interesting. Um I read differently now. I mean, I read more mindfully about what it takes to bring something to life, yeah. whether it's fiction or nonfiction. Um, mm. I mean, I've been writing for decades, but I've never written a book-length thing before yeah. Before this one. Mm. And finally, uh, what's, your, what's your favorite book? What's your favorite book you've ever read? I don't know if this is absolutely my favorite book, but I'll tell you a book that really has stayed with me, which is Michael Chabon's The Adventures of Cavalier and Clay. Hmm. Um, it's sort of a fantasy, but it's also a lot about American culture and history. Yeah. Hmm. Well, thank you so much. Thank you, Amy, for joining us today. And uh, we really appreciate having it. Janesville, you can buy at bookstores everywhere. It's a terrific read. Thanks so much. I Think You're Interesting is hosted and executive produced by Todd Vanderwerf. In case you hadn't guessed, that's me. I'm now going to read you closing credits because closing credits are what we do here. Vox Podcasting is headed up by Marty Mo and Jackie Goldstein. Our executive producer of audio is Nishak Kurwa. Our sound designer is Miles Ewell. Our logo design is thanks to Victor Ware, Crystal Stevens, and Georgia Cowley. Our production manager is Alex Ulreich. Our production coordinator is Paige Bethman. Our audio engineering and post-production are thanks to P3 Post. We recorded this week's episode in two locations. Amy was at our our DC podcast studio, Vox Media podcast studio, and I was in the Village Workspaces podcast studio in Santa Monica, California. Our editor is Peter Leonard, and our recording engineer is Che Brooks. Please remember to rate, review, and subscribe to I Think You're Interesting on anywhere you listen to podcasts, be that Apple Podcasts or Stitcher or some other app you use that I've never even heard of. And be sure to listen to some of our other podcasts in the Vox Media Podcast Network, uh, including shows like The Weeds, The Ezra Klein Show, and The Recode Decode. Thank you so much for listening, and we will be back next week with another interview with someone from the world of arts and entertainment, somebody who I think is interesting. Until then, remember, it never hurts to ask for help.